getting people to connect with their food has been my biggest thing because people drive by farms, they see whatever going 70 miles an hour. It's just been a huge disconnect. And so that's turned into another really important part is connecting people to their food, to be that much more aware of what's there and how what they have on their plate gets to them, how it's grown, and just feel a, a bigger connection to the farming community, to agriculture. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming, where I talk with inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This is Chapter 5 The Cowgirl State. This time, regenerative farmer, heirloom grain grower, and operator of Wyoming's only commercial flour mill, Sarah Wood of Wyoming Heritage Grains. Sarah and I went to high school together in Powell, where her farm is based, and I've been following her journey for a few years now. It's been really exciting to see how she's grown and is making an impact in our hometown and doing things differently. What started as a side project for Sarah, getting interested in heritage and heirloom grains, which are ancient pre-hybridized varieties of wheat, barley, oats, and rye, for example, is now a full-blown operation. She shifted her family's farm to regenerative practices like no-till, planting cover and companion crops, and rotational grazing. She's particularly interested in growing these ancient grains to add back to the biodiversity we've lost in our current food chain. Keeping food in her community is also of utmost importance, and connecting people to where their food comes from and how it gets to their plate is central to Sarah's mission. Because of this, Sarah's direct-to-consumer and mills all her own flour after growing her grains and weeds. I learned so much in this interview, and it's really an important one, dealing with the health of our soils and ecosystems and what we can all do to be better stewards of the land that we love. Here's Sarah. I am fourth generation farmer and a fifth generation here in the basin. My family was one of the first to farm about 1908. So we've been here for a little while, grown conventional crops, sugar beets, beans, barley, corn, peas, just about anything that's been grown up here. We've grown. My great grandpa and grandpa purchased our current farm right now, I believe it was in 1946. It was still sagebrush. It was native desert prairie and they broke it all out by hand, basically had little equipment. Our property did belong to Buffalo Bill at one point. The east side of the property was part of his country club. As they were digging up sagebrush and trying to make it farmable, they found golf balls, found all sorts of remnants of the time of it being part of Buffalo Bill's property, which I always thought was pretty neat. So they started farming here in the mid 40s. It was after my grandpa was discharged from the Navy after World War II. So they started settling in here and put together all the underground irrigation. I mean, it was quite the undertaking. It wasn't just you broke the land and then you had your water. It, it was a whole system that they had to put together, which was pretty impressive for back in the day because they didn't have much equipment to do it. It was a lot of digging by hand. 
you know, the whole reclamation effort and getting water Mm -hmm. to Powell and so many places in the West, people came from all over, but literally came to a barren landscape that as you're speaking to, you know, they really bet their entire livelihoods on trying to make it. Yeah, it was, it was the new frontier for sure. It came here to basically the desert to try to farm. The Bighorn Basin is a very unique growing area because it is is considered a high mountain desert. So here in the basin, we get between six and nine inches of precipitation a year, which is included our rains, snow, everything. So we are highly dependent on irrigation water, but it makes it for a really unique growing area because we are so arid. We can grow some of the best grains in the United States, if not the world. We're very comparable to the Middle East on our humidities. That way we can grow a lot of these grains that require it to be pretty dry. So you don't get different pest problems, mold, ergot, all different things that can plague grain in higher humidity areas. Wow. That's so fascinating. I mean, we grew up together in Powell and Mm -hmm. I had no idea that we had such a similar ecosystem to places in the Middle East. It's pretty incredible The I mean, cause they get pretty cold in the desert over there and they get snow, but it's dry. It's a very dry cold. So did you always think you'd get into farming yourself growing up, having the farming gene and your family legacy? Um, not so much. I did not want to be on the farm at all. Went out to the corporate world, learning different skill sets. I of course, never really left the farm, was always here helping with cows, um, irrigating, doing hay, whatever work was needed. So it never left, but I also didn't think I would ever want to be a full-time farmer. This kind of started as a side project for me going on five years ago, uh, focusing on heritage grains and just finding out how much biodiversity we have lost in our current food chain. And just learning a lot about why certain people can eat wheat, cannot eat wheat. Obviously, there's people with celiac disease, which they are allergic to the gluten proteins, which are in a lot of small grains. But finding out why so many people have turned gluten sensitive, like they they don't have celiac, but they are not able to eat grain. It does make them sick. They do have a reaction to it. With the grains, I found out that we have lost so much biodiversity in um, what types of grains we grow, which varieties of these grains we grow. And I looked to the Middle East and to Europe and how these smaller farmers and communities are still growing the grains that they have for thousands of years. And why we started straying away from that with hybridization, which is selective breeding with Uh, these different grains to get either higher yields, shorter straw, um, just different characteristics to make it more profitable business. I decided since I also have two small children, I was missing out a lot and I wanted them to have the same upbringing I did. I wanted them to be raised on the farm fully, have that, you know, really good childhood experience. So I ended up leaving my corporate job in February of 2020, which actually turned out to be quite a blessing since the world kind of imploded shortly after. And it was hit the ground running. We had to 
change what we were doing and really started focusing on these heirloom grains. I love that your girls were such a big reason for you to kind of reconnect with your family heritage, but I'm curious why, yeah, why not just go the traditional route, grow the commodities that's at least like some sort of safety net in farming, which it does have a lot of unpredictability. You can't control the weather. (laughs) You can't control a lot of things. So why decide to do something completely different with growing different wheats and grains and also having to create a whole new market for that? What was the, what was the original seed for you that was planted to, to go a different direction? For me, the most part, if we wanted to continue and be sustainable, we had to do it on our own because there is really no market for heritage or ancient wheats. Everyone gets really excited about hearing those words and talking about those grains, but the education has been pretty sparse. So it was not just trying to get these products out. It was also educating the public. I just threw myself into it and as I've been going along, it's just caught fire. So many more people are interested. They are now much more aware of the different types of grains. It's not just a red and a white wheat. That's what a lot of people were just thinking of, that there is a whole new world. As I like to tell people that, you know, these different types of wheats are like comparing a garden tomato with a grocery store tomato. Like there's no comparison at all. And so just getting people to connect with their food has been my biggest thing because people drive by farms, they see whatever going 70 miles an hour. It's just been a huge disconnect. And so that's turned into another really important part is connecting people to their food, to just be that much more aware of what's there and how what they have on their plate gets to them, how it's grown and just feel a a bigger connection to, you know, the farming community to agriculture. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how it's grown in a pretty short period of time. You're really evolving your family's farm from the wheat, but also into regenerative practices. So just walk me through the last two years. What's, what's it been like and what are you doing there on your farm? I started really looking at regenerative ag, started reading about it, what it was and trying to convince my dad and my uncle that this was the route that we really needed to get on because we did not want to, you know, face different problems. And I didn't realize that in two years, we were going to really start facing a lot of these supply chain issues. So obviously when COVID hit, getting fertilizers, getting seeds, getting basically anything was impossible. And so that really got me thinking of why are we depending on all of these things when we can pretty much generate everything we need here on the farm and, you know, being more sustainable ourselves, not having to depend on whatever we could get. I don't want to be pinned into a corner with these large corporations. I don't want to be a corporation on our farm. I want to be a farmer. So it was time to just focus on this fully, which everyone that's ever started their own business, it's 
it's hard. It's one of the hardest things you can do, especially when you're creating your own market. That's why a lot of farmers deal with the commodity markets. You get a contract, you grow the crop, you deliver it, and then you're done. The commodity markets really control what a lot of people do, how much they're paid, but diesel, insurance, even the string to tie your hay, everything, the prices have just skyrocketed. It's really expensive and it, it, it's adding a lot of stress on agriculture. And so doing the full thing of raising it, trying to figure out how to market it, how to do products, actually distribute it yourself was something I didn't think was going to be as hard as it turned out to be. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about your business and those challenges as well as some of the opportunities. But I also want to talk to you about finding these heirloom grains. You're definitely going against the grain, not buying your seed from Monsanto or another large corporation. So how did you find and source these heirloom grains? I went down that rabbit hole of, of finding out why we got away from these grains and trying to locate these specific uh, varieties, which is very, very difficult unless you can find somebody that has been growing it, you know, as a, a side thing on their operation. It's, it's pretty impossible to find any sort of seed. Started bugging people in the USDA, uh, different colleges and trying to find seed. I've gotten many, many varieties from the USDA themselves and the seed banks. And what's really unique about these land-raised varieties, which that's what these heritage and heirlooms are considered, is they adapt to wherever you grow them. So whatever is required for them to survive, they will do that to adapt, which I thought was just beyond fascinating. There's all sorts of different types of wheat. So a lot of people just think wheat is wheat. There's different classes. So like pasta flour is a durum. That is the hardest wheat that is grown. Then you have your hard red wheats. You have your soft red, your soft white. And then more modern hybridized wheat is the hard white wheat. And so I have gone through. What does hard like and soft the, mean? Is that like literally how hard so, the grain is? Yep, or? how hard the kernel is. So a lot of soft wheats are like for your cake flours, breads are typically hard wheat because they have higher protein, higher gluten structure. So just trying to find different things that haven't been commercially grown. Some of them give you pretty in-depth descriptions, say what they encountered, like the diseases, the pests that bug the weeds, how, um, how it performed. Cause a lot of these are very low yielding beets. I was fascinated about how they found some of these. There was a couple, I believe it was an Iran that they found in the forties that it was just growing on the side of the road and they collected those seeds. Mm. <laughs> so it's yeah. a lot of, it's really random because like I said, that a lot of those ran, land races will adapt. And if we could get some of these that are semi hard already to adapt to a hard wheat, then we can continue to let it adapt naturally and try to get weeds that are a lot more productive without requiring hybridization or having to buy commercial seed. I want something that, that works for everybody. So just going through and just trying to pick, I think I have 60 varieties that I'm growing out this next year. I've gone back into history books from 
USDA stuff from 1800s, early 1900s, trying to figure out what varieties were being grown, how their characteristics for milling, where they had come from. I've, I found a lot that have come from South Africa, Australia, that I'm going to be looking at for a possible expansion. That's amazing. So you've really just dove into this headfirst from deciding to pick up farming for yourself and keep your family's farm going, but really move it in this entirely new direction with growing these wheats and ancient grains, but then starting your own flour mill too, because as you said, there isn't really a market for these necessarily otherwise. So tell me about that process and really love how you're, you're going from seed to table with your entire endeavor. Yeah, there, there used to be a couple of flour mills in Wyoming, one on the eastern, close to the Sundance area. There was one obviously in Sheridan, the, it's now a hotel. There was one in Casper. I believe there was one in Cheyenne. But yeah, I, I want to kind of bring back how the communities used to be where, you know, you had your local butcher, you had your local flour mill, you had your produce, all that enough to sustain the community. And I, well, now that we can ship things, I can be kind of the community mill for the state and surrounding areas. You know, I think it ties back to you, some of your original inspiration of, you know, just wanting to be more self-reliant and sustainable, but speak on your passion for community. Yeah, there's been a huge resurgence, obviously, in local foods. So, you know, most communities have their greenhouses, the people that are growing local produce, the ranchers selling shares of cattle, selling directly to people. But there is nothing in the flour or fresh, you know, grains. Like I said, the commodity markets, the farmers get their contracts, then the product is loaded up right after harvest, and then it's gone. It goes either exported worldwide, it goes to big commercial mills, but we don't have anything that comes back here locally. I saw that as an issue. So started really looking into milling, which I didn't know anything about and learning how to do that entire skill set, which has turned out to be a lot of science and a lot of art. It changes every single day every type of grain that you have, it's different. So it's new every day when I, when I fire up the mill, it's going to be completely different than what it was yesterday or even earlier in the day. Definitely learning how to mill the different types of wheats. It's been a huge, huge reward. I didn't think I would be really excited about milling grain We'd always done it for cows, like grinding barley, but not actually making flour, learning about the different types of flour, then also doing all the research on how to use all the different types of flour, because yeah, I can sell this to people all day long, but if I don't know how to use it myself, it's not going to work for anybody. So I've been having to re-educate myself. I have to re-educate every customer that I have. So it's been, like I said, very rewarding, um, I didn't think I would be ever as excited about wheat, um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's definitely become a passion project more than anything. Being more sustainable, you know, cutting out a lot of the journey our food takes has been great. It's been really inspiring to a lot of other people. It's made a lot of other people want to start other businesses such as baking, um, specializing in different, you know, local ingredients. So it's been 
a different journey than I had really started out with, which it's great that it's inspiring other people. I've been encouraging other farmers to look at this and, you know, kind of market directly. So trying to strengthen the farming community, agriculture ties and getting people to actually understand where their food is coming from, not just, oh yeah, that's where the cows are. Yeah, that's where, you know, the the barley and the wheat are, but them not knowing where that goes from there mm-hmm. and how it ends up back to them. So taking people on the journey of, you know, the the farm to table has probably been one of the more important things that's happened the last couple of years. And people wanting to know about that has definitely helped open the doors. And so people are a lot more aware that they can drive by, see that field, and they know that their their flower came from that field has been just incredible. That a lot of people are really fascinated and now starting to understand the adversities that farmers do face with mother nature and obviously the last two years supply chains and what we do to make sure that they have food on the table. It's been really eye-opening for both parties. And I think as you spoke to, there is so much more of a market now for, you know, the local food movement, uh, farmers markets, just people wanting to know where their food comes from. From the business perspective, I think it is a, there are those doors that are open and more opening. But I I also, you know, when you have your own business, it is, you're wearing so many hats and that marketing piece, that's, that's huge. You can create your product, but selling your product, creating the market for it, that education piece, that is a continual effort. It sounds like that's something you really love to do. Definitely. I didn't think, cause I, you know, spent 10 years in my corporate job trying to shoo salespeople away. And I've had a turn into that, which I'm like, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to sell you something. This is something I truly believe in. And it's changed so many lives, especially with that gluten sensitivity. One of the great things is families that, you know, one or two people have become gluten sensitive. So they have to make two meals, one for them and one for the rest of the family baking cookies, they'd have to make two different batches of cookies and getting people to try these grains and find out that they can tolerate them. So even small things like a mom being able to bake cookies and eat those cookies with her kids, she hasn't been able to do in 20 years has been pretty fulfilling to hear people like I haven't been able to eat wheat in 25 years, but I can handle yours just fine. It's been said it very fulfilling it wasn't something I set out to do it's something that obviously came with trying to get the products rolled out and getting people to try it definitely has opened a whole other door in getting people on these different types of grains yeah that's great let's talk a little bit about the regenerative farming piece because I think that's really fascinating and there's more knowledge coming out about why we need healthy soils, why that's important for our ecosystem and our climate. You spoke a little bit about part of that, it seemed like was a necessity just with supply chain issues with fertilizer and wanting to try a more natural route. Tell me the inspiration for why you wanted to start some regenerative farming practices. Also, maybe just a basic explanation of some of those components that would be a regenerative farming operation. Well, there, there's many facets to why I really wanted to start pushing on the regenerative ag. One of it was 
our, our soils are not healthy. We are not healthy as a people. And for us, the, the health starts in the ground. And if you don't have healthy soil, you're not going to have healthy nutrient dense food. And it just continues to spiral from there. So regenerative ag, the point of it is to have a living root in there as long as possible. Obviously here, that's a little more difficult because we have such a short growing season. We're between 90 and hundred days. So really started pushing this no-till. We haven't tilled in a couple years now. We don't plow because you're killing the fungi that feeds all the microbes. You're, you have different bacteria that help feed the microbes that are breaking down the organic matter on top of the ground. But that fungi is what keeps the soil together. That's where you're going to get your water infiltration. So if we get a downpour here and you get those really healthy aggregates, which it kind of looks like black cottage cheese almost. It's like where all the worms are at. That helps pull moisture and keep moisture in. So this helps us tremendously, especially here in the desert, you're using less water because that water goes in, it's not evaporating because you have that protective layer on top of the soil they call armor. And so every time that you're planting something, the cows are grazing, you, you keep that protective armor in there. So you're keeping all your moisture in there. Your ground is cooler. It's warmer in the winter. So we're able to go in and plant earlier because that, that soil is protected because the soil doesn't want to be naked. So with our wheat, we have companion planting as well. That's another really important part. So you, you have your ground covered at all times. You're never plowing anything up. You're never tilling anything up. So there, it always has something out there. So it kind of looks like a pasture or it looks like a meadow in the mountains. It always has something there protecting it because that's the most important thing you can do to keep all of your microbes and all of your important ecosystem living because they're constantly eating on that and, and building actual soil. Like wheat and barley grow, they're very high nitrogen fixers. So that means they suck all the nitrogen out of the soil. So how we curb that not having to use synthetic nitrogen is say with my wheat, I will plant it with clover, any sort of legumes. So peas that actually are what are called nitrogen fixers and build nitrogen naturally in the soil. And then that wheat feeds on that nitrogen. So they're companions, they feed each other. So you're not having to put any sort of synthetic chemicals in. You, we do soil tests twice a year in the spring and the fall to see where our soil is at and what it needs. And so we adjust with cover crops that are going to help that depleted nutrient get to a healthy level again in the soil. So wouldn't it be so much more convenient though to just add what it needs. And then I'm just thinking about when you have to harvest your wheat crop, you have all these other things in it. How do you separate it? Doesn't this add so much more time to your process to, to go this route? Um, yes and no. With these heritage wheats, it's a little easier because they have not been hybridized. So they're still five feet tall. You'll walk out in the field and they are, you know, three or four times higher than what we're accustomed to with modern size wheat. Yeah. 
you pick and choose, uh, like with the clovers, I pick a shorter one. So it, it helps build that canopy that is also weed suppression. And so you're not having to spray herbicides or pesticides on there because the, the ground is covered. You're suppressing those weeds with that clover that's going to grow right alongside of your wheat. Like I like to tell people, it's, it's farming as an ecosystem. You're, you're working with nature. You're not working against her because you treat her well in the way that she's worked for millions, if not billions of years. You're going to be rewarded tenfold. One of the quotes I saw in your, your social media was, we're not just a farm, we're an ecosystem. So maybe mm-hmm. you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah. So along with the companion planning and fixing your nutrient levels naturally, a lot of people get all uptight about different pests. So monocrop farming is what a lot of people do. You see, you see one crop out in the field, you are inviting um, pests in to give them a free meal. So then people are, are spraying pesticides to try to kill those bugs, you know, whatever's attacking the crop. But if you are companion planning, that also breaks up the stress of just having one crop, say like with the corn, you can also plant clover as well, because corn is another crop that is a heavy nitrogen feeder. So you're planting with the peas and the, the clovers that's also breaking it up. So like last year, I, I observed so many different insects that I had not really seen. Of course, the honeybees, we have cutter bees, all these beneficial wasps that will get rid of different problems. Like what we have in our hay, we have weevils that will just absolutely decimate your hay crop. Did not have any weevils last year in the new hay that we planted with you came and saw what I call the salad field where it had all the different crops in it. We didn't have any problems. We did not have any pest problems at all, which was phenomenal. One, one thing I remember too, walking the salad crop was that spider, a yeah. huge spider. And <laughs> you're like, oh, that's amazing because you tell, I don't remember what spider it was, but it's called a banded garden spider, banana spider. There's all different types of, I mean, yeah, some of them I've had legs span six inches. They've had a body that it's been, you know, three inches, huge spiders, especially for hair, but they eat grasshoppers. They eat other insects that are considered a pest. So it balances out like the pest ecosystem. So instead of inviting one type of insect to be there because you're just growing corn or you're just growing beans. You bring in all these other things and it brings in a whole other host of other insects that keep those other ones in check. So you're not having to fight a pest problem in your crop. You are, you know, you're adding nutrients into the soil. You're getting rid of grasshoppers that are just going to decimate everything. It's a win-win and it's, it's so hard to recircuit the brain when we have been trained, you know, the last hundred years, this is how we have to farm and more tilling is better. And, you know, working the soil, uh, cause by the time you plant something, you have disking, you have roller harrowing. I mean, it's like a four step process of just turning up the dirt and there's so much wasted time. There's so much wasted diesel on something that does not need to be done and 
trying to, you know, reintroduce this new hippie way of growing things, which is ridiculous because that's the way it's been done for billions of years in nature. Just trying to reprogram people and understand that we can coexist. We can still grow food, a lot of food, very healthy, nutrient-dense food that's actually going to nourish your body and actually sustain you in a way that we have not experienced in our in our generation. So yeah, to come in as a younger person and to do things differently, uh, I think is super important. And, you know, we just, we need that. We need that ground to still exist for Mm -hmm. growing things. And what has it been like for you to be somewhat of an outsider? I think for the people that have listened to me and actually come to see what we're doing is re-energize them. I've had a couple young farmers that have come in saw what we were doing. Um, I gave them different reference material to go over and it was kind of that aha moment. And a lot of people that were not looking forward to taking over the family farm, they have a whole new purpose. They are excited to farm. They want to continue down this path. They want to look at other niche markets. Like it's a huge uphill battle at first, but now people are looking, I have people stopping and going, what are you doing? And coming to me and I'll talk their, their ear off about it. And they're like, okay. And they kind of give, give them a day or two to process it. And they come back and like, you're onto something like, this is what we need. This is what we need to do to, you know, be sustaining as a farming community again that initial reaction, is it just because it looks so different? Like when you're driving by, you know, it's not just that one crop, like you said, it's the salad field. It's just, yes. people are like, what's, what's happening there? Yeah. And even our wheat fields, you're used to wheat. That's only 18 to, you know, 18 inches to 24 inches tall. And I have wheat that's growing. That's 60 inches tall. So about five feet tall and just the color absolutely beautiful. Like this picture behind me, that was our white Sonora field. It's completely different. It's something that no one around here has seen. So it's piqued the interest of a lot of my family that live a little farther West. All my neighbors, they're, they're fascinated. They're, they don't know what I'm doing still kind of thing, but I I've piqued their interest a lot in getting them to read different materials from some of the people that I have relied on heavily on learning on how to do this properly because you know with me I got one shot to do it and thankfully it's been successful for us otherwise I don't think my uncle my dad would let us continue on with it Mm -hmm. but definitely a huge thing is the amount of work that's cut down instead of working that field four different times to get it ready to plant you're not plowing it up all you're doing is you lay down whatever cover crop like we planted barley and wheat this summer after we pulled hay off for the last time in the rye we went in and re-drilled that but we use that as pasture for cows which is another huge thing Um, people are always looking for pasture for their cows cows do their thing they're naturally fertilizing they're adding more nutrients back into the ground and plus they're getting fed for a couple months. I had posted something for your interview, just if anyone had questions about what you did. And one of them was about cows and, you know, they are a big carbon producer, but in regenerative agriculture there, it's actually 
really a, a sustainable practice. Could you talk about that in a little more depth and maybe just even that carbon sequestration that happens within the soils in regenerative agriculture? I'm glad you brought that up. Do you know where carbon actually belongs, where it's coming from? Well, I do after researching this <laughs> topic, it's in, it's in the earth, it's in the soil, it's not in the in atmosphere. The soil. That's, that's what plants eat. That's what plants survive on is carbon. So when you are tilling, you plow up that, that fungi, like I was talking about earlier, you're breaking that barrier. You're releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere where it doesn't belong. We need that carbon back in the ground. That's what's giving us healthy plant life. That's what's going to help our, you know, our nutrients, make our nutrient-dense food. When you are doing no-till, you're doing these cover crops, you have something constantly pulling that carbon back into the ground where it belongs and keeping it there. Cows aren't, aren't the issue. They're part of the solution. The rotational grazing, they add nutrients back into the soil. They are turning up the vegetation, they are feeding other organisms because there's life cycles that go in within the insects, the worms. It is just one continuous ecosystem. I mean, it's so unimaginable that there's so much life underground, but that's what keeps us going. That is what makes all of these cycles possible. That's what makes you able to have something to eat is all these little tiny organisms and without rotational grazing with cattle, sheep, chicken, pigs. I mean, it's all so important. Every one of those uh, species of animals brings something back to the soil. So that's why it's, it's really important to have biodiversity within your animals. It's biodiversity within your crops. Like I like to tell people, you look out in a meadow, you go up in the mountains and you look at all the species of grasses, of flowers, of trees, bushes. That's how we're trying to farm. We want all the different types of um, species of plant life that we possibly can have. When we called our salad field last year, that had seven different species in it. It had different grasses. It had the peas in it. It had sorghum sedan grass. We want to be like nature. We want to be diverse because one, it's going to make your food that much healthier. It's going to make your soil healthier. It's going to make life in general healthier. I mean, we're reintroducing here on the farm as well, um, natural pollinators. So I've done a lot of research, a lot of seed collecting costs a lot of money to do it, but we are putting in all these pollinator strips of native wildflowers. And that's going to help bring in more pollinators, but it just makes it look pretty too. So we're mimicking nature. We're just doing what she's done successfully and we're turning it into a way that we can sustain our food, but also sustain the health of our soil and the health of our planet. And speaking of that diversity that you were talking to with the cover crops and that salad fields and all the different types of things you were growing, but the, the insects and the pollinators and all that biodiversity, that's so important. One of the things I read is biodiversity is life on earth. And, you know, why does biodiversity matter? Why is biodiversity so important? Nature is so important. And so if we can keep nature as healthy and as natural as possible, 
it's not going to do any harm. I mean, you think about how many campaigns have been out there for, you know, saving the bees, saving the butterflies, because once those gone, those are gone, our food's gone. We need these insects more than anything to pollinate, to keep our food going. Because if we don't have bees, we don't have these special pollinators, the butterflies, I mean, certain birds, you don't have those, you don't have food. So if we don't take care of them, they can't take care of us. And we're done. We're done as a, a species and as a world. So I want to try to do my part as much as I can to keep that going. You know, they've been here for billions of years and we've kind of destroyed a lot of it in the last 150 years. Let's talk about the future. I mean, I feel like you've been probably going at a thousand miles an hour since this this whole endeavor started, which is that, you know, really wanting to make a shift for your family and really trying to transform your farm, transform an industry, transform your community. Where do you see this going? Where now that you're, you're in it and it's, it's evolving in ways you couldn't have imagined, what's your vision for the future? Definitely keep going with everything. I just got a bunch of other types of seeds from USDA. I got heirloom popcorns. I got a bunch of other heirloom corns, sorghums. I just want to continue on with every class of these heritage grains, heritage crops, and just try to bring back and encourage other farmers to, you know, find their niche, find something that's unique, something that excites them. So since I really didn't start out with the plan, I really don't know where the future is going, but I'm just, I'm just trying to think out outside of one box and out of another and another box and try to figure out, you know, where this is going to take us. I want to, to try to find and be sustainable with a lot of different crops and keep expanding, just keep researching and learning what, you know, was done before in different parts of the country. I mean, I have, I've looked into rice, looking at what we consume every day and looking and seeing if that's something that we can grow here, if that's something that we can do. And then I go back 10, 10 steps and try to figure out where that originated from, what was the original crop that was grown with that. And, and just try to take it back to what I've done with the wheat, you know, take it, take the history back, you know, 500 years and see where it started at. So I, I'm not going to really try to put anything into a box. It's just, it's constantly evolving. I never know from day to day what we're going to try to do, what, what we want to do. It's, it's also a lot of consumer driven, but also trying to steer the consumer into reaching out and trying new and different things to them. It may not be a new variety or whatnot, but it's something that they've never experienced. And just try to get people to think outside the box It's one of those, I'm going to have to steer them into thinking of other niche crops, definitely building the facilities to handle that. Because like I said, everything's loaded into a truck or a rail car and it's hauled off. They don't have to worry about cleaning it. I mean, cleaning grain itself is a huge project itself. Mm. It's just little things you don't think about when you're moving from field to direct to consumer. You have all these other steps you have to fulfill yourself. So getting the infrastructure, I, I really want to work on getting infrastructure for other people and getting them to understand that they don't have to just ship everything off that they can, you know, 
get that product that they grew themselves back into the community. I mean, we used to have that back in the, back when our parents were growing up here, they had a cannery. They used to grow um, peas, beans, corn, and then they would can it. Same with the the pinto beans here. They used to sell pinto beans direct. Now you don't get pinto beans direct unless you're right there when they're harvesting and you have your bucket and you collect it right off the truck. Just getting people, I guess, to to figure out different ways of keeping what they grow here locally and not having to ship everything off and be processed to the point where it's not recognizable anymore. When you look at a can of corn or a can of peas or beans and you look and see where that was processed, it, it, it kind of blows people's minds. They don't understand why we can't process things here in our own country. It's being shipped overseas, being processed and brought back to us. Like it, it's such a waste and getting people to understand that we can do it here ourselves in any community. Just keep, keep what you grow local. I mean, it's possible. Even for a statewide level, because I think Wyoming, we're always trying to figure out other industries. So we're not so reliant on minerals and oil. And like, here's our opportunity to do something really out of the box and forward thinking. And that's where my wheels are turning right now. Like, how do we uh, really, really launch this, really go big? Yeah, there's been a lot of talks, a lot of different things. The state has become really interested in how we can capture agriculture more and keep it here in the state and be more profitable. I mean, it's really hard when no one can afford um, to buy the family farm or to expand when it's, you know, $10,000 an acre. And it's not sustainable to, to grow when you think about you may, with conventional stuff, you may make 50 or $75 after everything's paid per acre. That that doesn't leave a lot of money in the bank with these family farms that are, you know, three, 400 acres that, that doesn't leave a lot of money at the end of the year for anything. So it's not sustainable. That's why a lot of people have walked away from ag. It's just easier to sell the, you know, 300 acre farm to the developers for, you know, a couple million dollars and walk away. Cause they'll never see that working as a farmer. And that's why a lot of people, our age don't want anything to do with ag because they've watched their families struggle for 60 years and they don't want to be a part of that. Um, farmers in the U S it's an extremely high suicide rate, which is really sad. Watched a lot of people my age or really close to my age, take their lives because it's so stressful. Wow. People, you know, have all these stigmas of ag and what they think it takes a huge toll on them. And I, I completely understand it's a lot of stress farmers. There's, I, I think it's 2% of the population feed 98%. So it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of um, responsibility. And when you're constantly being told that, you know, you're torturing your animals or you're not, you're, you're trying to kill everybody by growing food. It's, it's really hard. But I also think that farmers need to start reevaluating, start thinking outside the box, looking more towards holistic farming, the regenerative and, and go that route. It's a lot less work on their end and you're getting a much better, healthier product. It's so exciting for me to really get to learn more about 
what you've been doing in such a short amount of time, Sarah. And I think it's really important and, you know, on a a larger scale, but just for you individually, it's exciting for me to see you find this seed and really see it grow and evolve. And it sounds like already you're just impacting people that you're coming into contact with other farmers, the consumer, and I just applaud you for the the work you're doing. I know it's not easy having your own business and having to do everything. It's a lot. So, you know, what, what kind of things that you've learned and advice that you'd want to impart to other farmers, but just anyone really to kind of follow that curiosity and take those risks and think outside the box. I definitely want people to be more connected to the land. I want people to be more connected to farmers. I mean, stop by, go, go talk to, you know, farmer, you see him setting water. He'll talk to you all day about (laughs) farming, anything like that. Um, I want people to understand that farmers really truly do care about the land. A lot of them have been backed into a corner to accept these, you know, tools that aren't necessary. And I, I really want farmers and ranchers to understand that they have to they have to work together. Farmers need the ranchers' cattle to help keep the land healthy. The ranchers need that land as well to help feed their cattle. Like I I want people to work together. I don't want people to work against each other because there's more than enough pie to go around for everybody. I want the consumers to really understand where their food comes from, what it takes to get that food to them, which it's becoming a bigger thing. The the farm to table movement has gotten really big. A lot of people are much more concerned about practices, obviously with the organic movement, but I want people to really focus in on it. And I mean, themselves in their own garden. I grow, grow some wheat, grow some barley, see what it takes to grow that. I mean, there's been a huge interest in people wanting to grow, you know, small scale. There's no such thing as, you know, too small a scale. You can do, especially this regenerative practice, you can do it in a bucket. You can do it in your flower bed. Like I want to normalize it. I want to normalize messy fields. I will, we don't need this clean cut agriculture or even our yards, like plant more beneficial things for our, our animals that are needing this. We've taken away so much of their habitat that we need to give back where we can. And definitely this regenerative ag fits a big piece of that puzzle. I want everyone to connected we've been so disconnected from the earth take your shoes off go take a walk recharge like we're so busy with our lives that we forget the basics and I really really want people to to understand you know from from ground zero I what it takes we're all in this together we all have to work together it doesn't matter if you're in a a city city folks and the country folks all need each other to survive and I really wish that We'd stop setting up walls and we would just work together on all this because without each other, we have nothing. It's very true. And I think now more than ever, that attitude is vital. We need, we need that across the board. And that definitely inspires me to think on, okay, how can I do this on a smaller scale on my land? We have two and a half acres and what can we be planting in our gardens and the little acreage that we have that will help the pollinators and 
So thank you for, for helping me see, I can do something with even my little bit of land and that you can even go smaller scale with that, you know, maybe put out just a pot of something. If you live in the city, one of the questions I got as well, which I think is a a great addition to what we're talking about. Are there any good cover plants that can sustainably replace a lawn? Oh, absolutely. Native grasses. So there's a lot of native grasses. If you don't want something that's really tall, depending on where you're at, like here in Wyoming, you can mix different fescues, but a warm season, because you have cool season, you have warm season grasses, a warm season grass. So you won't have a lawn till a lot further in the summer was like buffalo grass. Talk to your extension agents, talk to universities and see what native grasses you have. You can plant you know, wildflowers you can plant. There's different herbs that you can plant that, you know, kind of cover the ground. They're low, uh, they're usually some sort of creeping title. You can plant all sorts of different things. You don't have to have like Kentucky bluegrasses, probably the most well-known um, lawn grass. We're reseeding all of our lawn. We have a windbreak and then in our yards and there are going to be more natural grasses. So yeah, they're not going to get cut. They're going to, you know, stay like four, six inches tall, but that's, that's all the taller they get. It's really important for your grasses to seed out to reseed themselves, but also those are beneficial to different insects as well. They need that. The, the grasses you'll see have pollen. That's another important thing for bees as well. So, I mean, you can, do all different things. There's a huge movement for people that are taking out their yards and they're planting gardens. They're planting different wildflowers or have a whole yard full of sunflowers. It's, it's whatever you want. It's your preference. That's the beautiful thing about it. That's awesome. You've given me so many ideas, (laughs) the sunflowers, especially I'm like, Oh yeah, I got to plant some of those. (laughs) Well, do you have any parting words or anything we missed that you'd like to share? I mean, that's the thing with this whole regenerative thing is we all have a part of it. It's not just farmers. It's not just myself. It's all of us. If we can't all work together, it's not going to work. I'm obviously doing it a little larger scale, but I want people to realize that they can do it themselves. Farming is an ecosystem. So you can do your garden as an ecosystem. You can do your lawn as an ecosystem. It's all going to make a big impact. So it's not just farmers, it's everybody. Everyone has a piece of it. Everyone can, can sustain their own, own property, their whatever they have. But if we don't all work together and don't all do this together, it's not gonna work. That was regenerative farmer, heirloom grain grower, and operator of Wyoming's only commercial flour mill, Sarah Wood of Wyoming Heritage Grains. You can order all of Sarah's products on her website at wyomingheritagegrains.com. You can also follow this project on social on Instagram at Women in Wyo, that's Women in W-Y-O, Facebook at Women in Wyoming, or visit our website and see all of Sarah's photos, as well as her full write-up at womeninwyoming.com. Sarah's story wraps up chapter five, The Cowgirl State, and this volume of the series. A very special thank you to the Hughes Charitable Foundation for supporting this project and all of our incredible sponsors and partners over the years. I'm Lindsay Linton-Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming. Women in Wyoming.